If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. Hello, and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing in the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Do we have free will? Are we exercising our agency or following our predetermined destiny? How would we structure our society if we believe that individuals are not in fact responsible for their actions? In this interview, analytic philosopher Galen Strawson discusses free will, ultimate moral responsibility, and the thin veneer of our own rationality. Strawson also probes the idea of the self and challenges the received view that having a narrative is necessary for making sense of our life. Galen Strawson is an acclaimed British analytic philosopher and literary critic who works primarily on the philosophy of mind and metaphysics. His work covers free will, panpsychism, the mind-body problem, and the self. He has been a consultant editor of the Times Literary Supplement and a regular book reviewer for The Observer, The Sunday Times, The Independent, The Financial Times, and The Guardian. He is also the son of acclaimed Oxford philosopher P.F. Strawson. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. It's now time to welcome Galen Strawson to Philosophy for Our Times. Tell us a little bit about your career as a philosopher. It's been a very long career, a very luscious <laughs> career. What's, is there a thread connecting your work? There, well, there's, there's a story about, I mean, I'm meant to be against stories and narratives, but there is a reason why I did it, which is that I read Islamic studies for two years at Cambridge, where basically I was just growing my hair and taking drugs. But um, then I thought, got bored with that because it wasn't well taught and took up social and political science. And after a year of that, I thought, this is a building that begins on the fourth floor. You know, where's the basement? Where's the foundation? Must be in philosophy. And you know, I had a certain disincentive to do it because my father was doing it and, and was famous and all that. But, but that is how I got into it. And then I just got hooked. I intended originally to go back to social political science, but I really got hooked. What was it like growing up in a household with a famous father, a famous philosopher, Peter Strawson? Um, very low impact. I mean, never really impinged. So, did you not? Did you not talk philosophy with him at home at all? No, not before I started trying to do it, and uh, only a bit afterwards. So it was mostly a concern with foundations and the kind of like key questions behind the assumptions behind yes, social I mean, science. That, that, that is what made me change. In fact, my tutor at the time, Gary Runciman suggested that that's what I ought to be doing, so I did it. 
So I know you said you have, haven't worked on this for a while, but free will obviously was a big topic in your career. Yes, yeah. And you've made the argument that free will uh, and an extension moral responsibility cannot really exist unless we control who we are. And given that that's not really possible for most of us, uh, we cannot really achieve it. We can, don't have control of our genes or how we get brought up and so on. So what do we do if we, if we get rid of that idea, given that it's so pivotal to society? Ah, well, we can't. So no worries. <laughs> um, I mean, that's, that's, as it were, the state, step two of what I tend to say about free, which is that on the one hand, there's this a priori proof that it, it's, that there's, well, I mean, let's, let me just slightly rephrase. Um, I don't know what free will means, really, but the thing I say is impossible is some, what I call ultimate moral responsibility. Right. I mean, and it's, it's, not, it's a pretty obvious argument, really. You do what you do because of the way you are in any given situation. So to be ultimately responsible for what you do, you have to be ultimately responsible for how you are. Premise two. Premise three, well... But you can't be ultimately responsible for the way you are because you'd have to be there already to kind of set yourself up. And that would lead to an infinite regress. So you can't be ultimately responsible for what you do. That's the argument. Um, and why doesn't it have an impact on how we run things in society, how we might run our criminal justice system, okay, say? Good, yeah. There are three answers I want to give. One is my dad's argue, answer, a famous paper called Freedom and Resentment by P.F. Strawson, where he says... You know, it's just not a real question for us because our, we're emotionally tuned in such a way that we can't not treat other people as free and feel guilty ourselves. My answer is different because I think he thinks the true, the true ground of, of the inability to give up belief in free will is our attitudes to others. I think it's our own experience of free will. Uh, and this, on, the, on the societal matter, I think... I had a pupil called Saul Smolansky, and I think he gives a good answer, which is uh, really it's a necessary illusion in a way um, for, for some simple reasons and some very complicated reasons which we could go into. I mean, one of the things is we can't help believing we are free, and it would be, it would be a tremendous affront to our self-image and our self-conception if we were treated as if we hadn't got it. I better perhaps now also give you the little toy story about why we can't help believing it, okay? I'm afraid I've not been very imaginative. I've had a story I tell for ages, but I'm going to tell it again. So um, it's the evening of a national holiday. You've got, you know, it's a feast. You've got a spread. But you think, really nice to have one more cake on the table and everyone comes tomorrow. So you go to the shop and you've got 10 pounds and the shop's about to close. And there's one cake left in the shop and it costs 10 pounds. And on the, on the step of the shop is a person collecting money for Oxfam for a charity. And you stand there, and existentially, pragmatically, you cannot not feel yourself to be absolutely, radically free to choose which thing to do. Even if you know, even if you believe determinism is true, and you believe, and that five minutes later you can turn back around and say, "Well, what I did was determined." In that moment, you are radically, existentially free. That's that's my argument. That's why I think it's primarily grounded in first-person experience, not in social matters. Mm. Is this a lesson for other areas of philosophy as well? Is, is philosophy always doomed to only affect how we think about things and not how we do things, not, not ultimately change the way we well, live our lives or the way we treat others? 
it is a question whether you could, you can break out of the, that belief. And it could be that there are certain spiritual paths that have been taken in which this has happened. Um, I, I like to quote this guy called Krishnamurti, who, said, who says roughly, when, you know, when you've achieved this kind of spiritual advancement, you do not choose. Um, because, as it were, I mean, or Spinoza. Spinoza says, God does not act according to freedom of the will. How could he? I mean, he, he does what is his best, but that is not a constriction. Um, so have I answered that question? I'm saying, is it even imaginable that someone could completely throw off the belief in free will? Um, well, I just don't know about that. It would probably take some pretty serious spiritual practice, but I don't suppose it's impossible. Do you think this idea that we have free will and the way that we think about it today was always with us? Was it always a, a human kind of concept or is uh, it a more modern idea? Uh, oh, I think it's old, but I think there's an awful lot of really interesting cultural variations there. I mean, two, just two simple examples. One, and I don't know what it, what, what it was like for these people when they lived it, but there was a very powerful conception of fate in ancient Greece and you somehow accepted that that was what that was your destiny or you thought you know character was destiny or something but the other thing that interests me is um some certain africa tribes it might have been the nua i i really don't know but whereas something bad happens to someone in the village and you know you go to the elder and says what has happened what's gone wrong and so at least sometimes it said it was your fault you had a bad thought or something and you caused this harm to this other person and there does seem to be a People are prepared to accept responsibility for that. Um, so what kind of conception of responsibility would that be? I mean, I don't know. Um, what about freedom of thought? I mean, we're, when we do philosophy, we put forward arguments, we try and change each other's minds. Yes. Oh. Even if we don't change how we go on to act in the world, we try and follow the reasoning, follow oh, indeed, the logic. That's, but that's it. We follow the reasoning. What are we ever trying to do but trying to get what's true? Um, we, don't, we wouldn't want to be free not free to go whichever way we want. We want to go to the truth. And if I try to persuade you, it's because I'm going to... Of course, it never works in philosophy. But, I mean, in principle, uh, what I would try to do is give you arguments that you saw the force of. and that's, uh, So I, I would be relying on, if you like, a kind of deterministic system in you, kind of your, your susceptibility to rationality. So I wouldn't... There is, I, I mean, it's interesting. There is a whole Kantian conception of freedom. It's basically... Determ being determined by reason. It's as it were, that is true freedom, is to be to find what you do necessitated there. So that's interesting. And Spinoza as well. But that does go against being determined by causes, by our physical causes, by the well, causes of our body, so. our environment. No, no, and so. I, wouldn't say, I don't really see a conflict. In fact, I think in my book about, original book long ago about free will, I talk about the causality of reason. I mean, you could go. You can go sort of naturalistic and evolutionary about that. Um, it was a jolly good idea if you were a creature trying to survive in the world that if there was a P and a P implies Q, you went to Q. So I would say, um, I mean, there's some very dangerous, there are some tricky business. I don't know if you know about debunking arguments in ethics, but you know, some very, some basic log logical thinking there is, is, is essentially irresistible. You can't do it. You can't resist it unless you're a, right-wing Republican or something. Right, well, of course, I was going to say, a lot of people <laughs> ah, do resist it and well, do yeah, yeah. I mean, believe in all sorts of irrational what, things. Yeah. Okay, so this is just a fact about the unlimited extent of human irrationality. Um, 
And here I always like to quote this guy, Daniel Kahneman. Do you know about this? He's, he's, he's this behavioral economist. Well, he's a behavioral economist who won the Nobel Prize with his colleague Amos Tversky. And they just, so there's a whole book called Thinking Fast and Slow, which is full of these extraordinarily results about how irrational we are. And I, can only, I think I can quote word for word one of the things he says. It's something like this. People will believe anything so long as they're backed up by a community of like-minded people. And so because this is why the internet is destroying us, because for any crazy view, however you... You know, in the old days, you were in your village with your crazy view and you didn't know that anybody had it. You, you kept it under control. But now on the internet, you know, there will be 30,000 people who are holding for you. No, but, no, but it is, it's sort of, as it were, he's an experimental psychologist too. It's basically established. People will believe anything once, the, once it's tribal, once the group gets behind it. Uh, so that's terrifying. And, of course, completely opposite of what I was saying before, because although we do have powerful forces as compelling us to be rational, especially when our lives are at stake, um, we also have this ter terrible capacity for irrationality. Yeah, so that's the conflict, I guess. We, get, we have both the pool of rationality and reason on the one hand, and the pool of our social being, our social existence, the way that we're socially determined, Right. that might pull us in a different direction. And so which one of the two, which one of the well, two it's a, it's a mixture. And I'm actually one of the, there's an interesting essay by G.K. Chesterton about what it is to be mad. And he said, you know, sometimes what the madness consists in a kind of crazy hyper-rationality where you, you, you are, the moves you're making, but the premises are crazy or something like that. So we, well, we live in this, we live between these two poles and stagger our way through life in a state of, Deep confusion, really. <laughs> Determined both by reason and by yes, natural yes. Yeah, forces are, and well, social forces. Yeah, I can see you, you, you want to bring in social forces. I entirely recognize them and agree with you about that. But it's just somehow it doesn't, not something that comes first to my mind. But of course, um, I don't know. I mean, but on the issue of cultural relativism, perhaps you're, I do, I recognize it and see how powerful it is. But I'm, I'm also in some sense, a humanist, and and I, I, I use that word advisedly because I, I learned in Australia it's a term of abuse among certain people. <laughs> what it is, I mean, I believe in certain human universals, human nature, and I'm so I'm not a radical, you know, cultural relativist, and of course, but it's deeply determinative of how we think our social upbringing. In your most recent book called Things That Bother Me, Death, Freedom, The Self, etc. You have a, an interesting anecdote about a past experience traveling the hippie trail uh, in the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, but you write about it as if it's about someone else, saying that you cannot yourself really recall seeing yourself there. Is that experience to do with the fact that personal identity, as other philosophers have argued in the past, isn't really real, so there isn't really a continuous self? Or is this a way that we can have some freedom, we can disassociate oh. from our past and reinvent uh, ourselves. Oh, I wouldn't think that was a kind of freedom. Um, but um, I think it's just, I'm, a just, I'm one psychological type, that is, and I have no sense of identity with the child I was. I mean, really, not even two days ago. I, um, a radical human in uh, well, that sense. You, yeah, in a way, it's funny you should say that, because, yeah, there was a man called Goronwi Reese who who wrote about this and was very similar, and he called his book A Bundle of Sensations. Um, 
I just don't have a sense of being there in the past or not pretty vaguely in the future too. And there's a very powerful sort of narrative school who thinks that no one is like this and they also think that it's really bad to be like this. Mm. I'm just, I think we should be ecumenical here and Catholic and just say, oh, it's, there are different types. Don't say what we all have to be like. Yeah, so this is something that you've also explicitly written about, the challenging the idea that we should see our life as this kind of continuous narrative, having a, yeah. a structure, having a cohesion, and feeling bad about our lives when that coherence seems to be lost, that we, yes. we seem to have episodes of our lives that don't really make sense in relation to, to other episodes. Why, why do you think that? Is that to do with well, I just the think idea that, that they shouldn't impose... Uh, no, there was, I think when I was writing that, it was almost universally accepted and among a wide spectrum of psychotherapists. So what we've got to do is find you a narrative. You know, we've got to get you a narrative and that makes you... And it's just... I've had a lot of people thank me for those things, saying, I thought there was something wrong with me because I didn't have it like that. I'm glad I'm not alone and so on. Um, but I'm certainly not saying that it isn't the nat right and natural thing for some people. Mm. It could well be. Um, but... Yeah, I mean, I have a sort of polemical streak here too. And I think that there is no sort of more um, fertile forum for self-perception than in the, the, the narrative you may tell about your own past life. You're very likely just to fantasize. And um, I mean, there's, there's a, um, you know, even people like Dennett will say things like that, that, you know, um, we kind of paint the best picture, which isn't true either. By the way, there are some people who have narratives in which they're always putting themselves down. As it were. Yeah. What other what other big philosophical illusions do you think we live with that don't really make sense intellectually, but we somehow keep going with them? Free will is one of them. We talked about having seeing our lives as having a story, a narrative. I wouldn't say that was an illusion, except you're very unlikely to be true to yourself if you're doing that. Um, well. The self, above the self. I don't know. It's, the trouble is that word is too hopelessly vague to know whatever, whatever's meant by that. But, I, but the book I wrote about the self, I'd started saying there seemed, there thought to be three principal illusions, you know, free will, the self, and love. And I thought probably love is the least worst off. I mean, probably better off than the other two. Um, of course, I think that everything, you know, I have a, a brain and it's massive dispositions. There's tremendous continuity there in character, personality, and so on. That's all true, but I don't... So I certainly don't think there's something else called a self that's not physical or um, personal identity. Help. I don't really know. <laughs> what about the idea that there is an ultimate truth out there, as it were, and we're, we're able to, to get to that? Is okay. that? That's a big philosophical yeah, we're really idea. the high points here. Uh, I just think that I could... I would say this, but I'd just take the word truth out, because truth implies a description or a representation. And I just think, look, I think it's actually a priori that is obvious that well, there is reality and to be is to be a certain way. That's a priori, necessarily. So if that's, what, if that's enough to say that there is an ultimate truth, I don't think that we could ever achieve a full description of it, but there is, I mean, I, I'm really entirely happy with the famous phrase that so many doubt, and you might if you were studying German idealism, the way things are in themselves. For me, it's a priori and trivial that there is a way things are in themselves. That is, of course, not to say in any way that we could ever get at it or give a description of it. Or... So I also, you know, I don't buy 
Schrodinger's cat type thing, saying it could be objectively both or indeterminate. Uh, and in fact, I only recently discovered that Schrodinger originally gave this case to show that it the was... The absurdity. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm yeah. very pleased to learn that. And what about self-knowledge? Are we... Is that possible? That was an early aim of Greek philosophy. Yes. Socrates starts out by that imperative, know thyself, yes. and that should be the guide and the aim. Is philosophy yes, able to teach us about ourselves? Sure. Well, but I think that's really that's interesting because apparently that originally was inscribed on the wall of the temple at, um, in Egypt somewhere. I've forgotten which one. Karnak or something. And it's pretty clear that what it meant when it was originally introduced was not self-knowledge. It was know what it is to be a human being. To, um, and I find that very pleasing, actually. I mean, it's no, it, it's clear that, and that, and that, that emphasis persisted into the Greek tradition. But it's clear also, at least, that it began to be thought to be something you should know more about yourself as an individual. But that certainly wasn't its origin. And I would wonder what I say about that. Well, of course, that's a good thing. But um, is it possible? Well, you know, then I think. Well, I sort of bring out my Nietzsche quotation, you know, man is a veiled thing. There are seven times, was it seven times seven levels and we'll, he can never know himself. Or, um, yeah, we remain of necessity strangers to ourselves. Yeah, things like that. Except that I think it's another, it's another individual variable. There are people who, who just sort of do, they're not illusioned, I feel, about themselves, whereas most people are just in fantasy land. And here, I, I, Aris Murdoch is my great support. She talks about the fat, relentless ego that comes along with some bullshit about it. <laughs> it's all, it, it, it is a place of illusion, she says. Um, and the other meaning of, of know thyself in ancient Greece was know your limits. And is that, is that something that philosophy it? can teach yeah, us? Is that also, well, that would, that would flow straight from know what it is to be a human being. To, um, and that would fit very well with Aristotle's stuff about the virtues. You know, this is... What, it is, what is a good life for a human being? You know, without details about your particular character. Uh, yeah, know your limits, absolutely. And one final question. How has philosophy impacted your life in a more personal way? Um, I think it's, I see it, very, I have it, see it as a practice in a way. I mean, nobody believes me when I say this, but when I first wrote a book, I thought, well, I don't know, now you get it published. And I didn't, it wasn't really to get it published because I thought people would read it. It was just, well, I thought like a sort of Sufi potter in a market. You know, what I'm doing is making pots here. And it's the practice rather than the... That sounds a bit sort of self-praising or holy or something. But, um, and of course, I do really care. And I hate it when people say there's no such thing as consciousness. And I, I want to... But I guess it has had... I think it has had a, a good detaching effect. I'm so... A detaching in some way... That is a good way. Of course, there could be bad ways of detaching. Well, Galen Strossen, thank you very much. Okay, nice to talk to you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. 